Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hello, Lucy, and thank you so much for holding the fort. Hello, and you're welcome. And more importantly, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. I've had a brush with COVID, as listeners to last week's podcast will know. Uh, uh, And although I'm still a little bit weedy and extremely snotty, I am fine. (laughs) (laughs) But it's okay because we do this remotely, don't we? We're not in the same room. Mm. So I can tell you that I'm back, if not on my feet and not ready to run a marathon, but at least back to pottering around the garden and that sort of thing, trying to get fresh air. Good. And that was quite a week to be in terms of gardening, which we like to talk about all the time. Over here, it was a week to be in the garden, sadly. Critical jobs need doing, as you know, Lucy. I mean, it is the time of hardening off. So every day I'm sort of pottering out to the greenhouse and taking all the sweet peas out and the dahlias and this and that. No, no chance. It was my first thing I did when I felt I could manage a short walk, though. Dahlias are pretty tough, except I say that and two of mine are getting absolutely eaten every morning by slugs. Yeah, I've got a couple like that, too. And mine is still inside. So these devils are getting in from somewhere. But I'm, you know, I know our pitch to have the TLS give us our own gardening podcast may have been, you know, set back a bit by last week. But I think we're back on full force now. What are you happiest at the moment with I'm in your garden happiest and slightly surprised by the roses because my roses are now coming out before the peonies isn't that weird I mean peony is a law unto itself under all circumstances but do they look lovely they're amazing they've gone nuts there's something about this spring that they have very much enjoyed so yeah they're huge I'm exceptionally envious. I I like to think that at the top of this hill 
here in Southern Ireland, we're always a little bit behind. Although I will say my potatoes are going great guns. So oh, we good. should, we should, you say that pride goes before a fall when the crows see that. I don't know about you. I've started to see my first swallows and swifts though. No, and I'm very jealous of that. That's really wonderful, actually. It's a lovely moment, even when you are palely coughing on your bed and you just see one out of the window and you think, yes, spring has come. Anyway, before we get closed down or hijacked, this podcast uh, we will tell you what's coming up on the show this week we delve into the remembrance of things past as mary beard tells us all about the souvenir buying habits of ancient rome it turns out we are not the only people to come back with a little memento in our suitcases and edward docks will be here to discuss whether there's any way back for a parliament mired in shame, scandal and contempt. But first, the summer is nearly upon us and many people's thoughts will turn to holidays and travel. And if you do go on holiday somewhere, you might bring something back, a T-shirt, a figurine, a reminder of the beauties of your trip or just a fun thing. Lots of people do, of course, and it turns out we've been doing this for centuries. Our own classics editor, Mary Beard, has reviewed two new books on the subject of ancient souvenirs, and she's here with us now, wearing her Kiss Me Quick hat, I imagine, <laughs> and she's going to guide us through the Sticks of Rock and the Venus de Milo statuettes. <laughs> Mary, thank you for joining us. I'm sorry for revealing to the world that you're wearing your Kiss Me Quick hat. I know. It looks, it looks great. I look great in it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So you start your piece by telling us about a trip um, that Hadrian took in 130 CE. What was he going to see and how do we know about that trip? This journey by Hadrian is one of my my kind of favourite, you know, favourite moments in ancient history of of all time, really, because Hadrian was the greatest travelling emperor. Unlike others, some of whom just stayed in Rome, basically, Hadrian went sightseeing, not just, you know, he didn't just go to fight the barbarians, he went sightseeing. And his most famous sightseeing uh, episode is when he goes to what the city we now call Luxor uh, in Egypt um, to see the great colossal statues which were already thousand years old by the time he got there, great pharaonic statues. Now, there are all kinds of things which are kind of odd about this trip because um, Hadrian goes to see these statues just after he's um, lost his beloved boyfriend in the Nile, um, a mysterious case of drowning. Uh, and so you imagine that the atmosphere in the imperial party was not as joyous as it might have been. But what they were going to is one of the most famous tourist sites ever in the ancient world to see these colossal statues. And it was not just because they were colossal that they were famous. It was that one of them was supposed to sing to you if you were lucky. We don't quite know how this worked, um, or we don't quite know whether it wasn't a trick by some um, good entrepreneurs in ancient Luxor. But if you went at dawn, it made a kind of whistling singing noise. And that was what you went to see. It was a miraculous statue. Um, And we know that Hadrian went one morning um, and the damn statue didn't sing. So they had to go back the next day and it did sing. Now, why we know about this, though, is even in some ways more interesting. It's because uh, uh, one of the ladies in Hadrian's party, um, a woman called Julia Balbilla, 
um, composed some poetry about this occasion, about the failure of the statue to sing on day one, um, but the successful singing on day two. And she actually had someone carve it into the leg of the statue itself. So, <laughs> you know, a bit of van- vandalism. A bit of vandalism. And <laughs> heavens, she was not the only one, because one of the things that you did if you went to see this statue was you left your mark on it and there's sort of a hundred or so uh carvings you know a kind of Kilroy was here sort of moment um on the the on the the leg and body of the statue where people say I came and I heard it or it worked for me and so you've got that kind of I mean I think it's it's a sort of exciting direct connection with the past you know because you know I've been to see these statues and there, I look at it and it's, you know, an old from on the statue, but there on its leg is this lady who visited it in 130. And you can still clearly see that and read it. And you can still see it and read it. You know, it is exciting. Mm. Suppose one of the things that that tells you, obviously, is that there weren't sort of tourist sites in that because there wasn't tourism. So, I mean, your first thought is, well, you'd never be able to carve something on the leg of a statue now because it would be, you know, behind ropes and, you you know, you couldn't get anywhere near it, could you? You'd end up in the neck, I think. Exactly. There was more sort of, I suppose, being the emperor, you know, helps, obviously. But there was a a more sort of direct uh, physical sort of interaction between uh, things that people visited and I think that's that's important and that's that I think is what's very in your face when you look at this because you know, the, the emperor obviously has a and the emperor's party you know, you know get a bit more free reign than other people but you know loads of people there are other women there, the governor of Egypt's wife you know this kind of thing they've also left left their mark and you know I, I I couldn't you know because of my job professionally I couldn't possibly recommend that people tried to do this anyway themselves because they would of course get into trouble but I think there is Ooh. there is something sort of nice about that memorialization of your presence at a monument I suppose now we do it with selfies don't we I mean um you know the selfie which everybody says oh gosh you know how tedious they you know people only come to this monument and what do they do they they take a picture of themselves on their phones you know um and I think that's you know that's kind of important you know we when we go to these tourist sites um we we want to kind of memorialize our 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 visit there and we do it in different ways so I think the selfie mm. is you know it's quite an important bit of modern touristic culture uh, well you heard it here first no, I'm sure that is. It. I'm sure that is true. That people, it's a very human thing to want to do to say, "Look, I really was here. It really did happen, and I can look back on it." I was really there, and I, and I think that's you know I think we should be a bit more tolerant of that. You know, you look, you go to the Louvre and you look at endless people having you know doing selfies in front of the Mona Lisa, and you you know you do think, oh, how, how irritating! I want to see this painting, whatever. But actually, you know, they're they're doing what Hadrian's party did in in 130 they're kind of they're they're marking their presence they're remembering it it's souvenir you know oh, to remember it. yeah yeah mary i must say about to go completely off track here but we we encourage digression don't we on this podcast lucy yes she said with trepidation <laughs> it puts me in mind of many years ago my husband was covering the uh world cup in germany and his duties took him to nuremberg uh and he was sort of walking around looking at it before there was a match there and looking at this 
you know, absurd monument to, to fascism. And he saw that somebody had written the word Cypress Hill on one of the, the seats. And Cypress Hill, an American black rap band. And he thought how much Hitler would have hated that. <laughs> and so that this moment of sort of I was here yeah. is sometimes very very it really kind of juxtaposes past and present in a way that's actually very satisfying yeah. sometimes doesn't it yeah I think yeah quite pleasing yeah. And, and quite constructive actually you know and I, yes. I think that in some ways um you know if we think about our own current statue wars you know maybe a bit more constructive graffiti you know might be one way of um engaging and showing our disapproval, if you like, uh, of some of these people who stand in public places around us, you know, don't just have to take them down. In some ways, you can actually kind of, you can pull them down to size in cleverer ways. Mm. And he, I think is one, one of the ways we do that and always have. So the uh, Julia Balbilla did her graffiti or got someone else to, as you say. Imagine that she kind of hitched up her skirt, climbed up, and you know, with her tools, I don't think that's very likely. I think I think she probably paid uh, paid quite a hefty sum to have a local craftsman immortalise her verses on the statue. Yeah, <laughs> Hadrian also he commemorated his trips, didn't he? You said he was a he was a great sightseer in, in his villa at Tivoli, which was actually a kind of great big sort of encampment, wasn't it? A big great big area. What how how did he? Commemorate them. Tell tell us about his villa. Well, I think the villa is very interesting. People um, people now kind of take Hadrian's villa at Tivoli, um, you know, a bit for granted. In fact, as you say, it's, it's the size of a town. <laughs> Hadrian built this extraordinary city for himself, um, you know, a few miles outside Rome. But what is very special about it, apart from all its um, little kind of bits of luxury and its underground car park and things like that, uh, underground chariot park. Chariot park, brilliant. One of the things he did was he replicated um, bits of his empire, his empire in inverted commas, in his villa. So he recreated um, the famous temple where... Um, the the statue of the Aphrodite of Cnidos stood. Um, he recreated Egyptian monuments. He had uh, the Caryatids from the Athenian Acropolis um, displayed in front of him in in his villa, as if somehow um, what he was doing was in, in of creating a microcosm of empire through its cultural highlights at this extraordinary country country theme park, really, I suppose, is what it was. It's, it's an amazing idea. It makes it sound like Las Vegas. Yeah. Got the Eiffel Tower and the, the pyramids and, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. And everyone says, ooh, how ooh, oh how awful. But actually it's a kind of amazing thing to do. Yes, you know, it's it is you know, I, I think there must probably have been some people in the second century CE who thought how naff this is um, when they saw what Hadrian had done. But in some ways it is, you know, it's another way of memorialising. It's a way of, you know, you ask yourself the question of how do I fit into this world? How do I see it? (laughs) How do I imagine it uh, when I'm not there? And one of the ways to do that, if you've got the money that Hadrian had, um, is of course to rebuild it, and 
you know, there's a long tradition of that too. You know, the that you know within Christian architecture in the Middle Ages, you know, there's there are people rebuilding the Holy Sepulchre in their local church. Um, you know, it's it's about it's about making visible things that you want to remember, and I think we shouldn't want you know. You know, we we should knock it a bit less than we mm. usually do. I mean, we see it even now, don't we? See it at, at something like the cast courts at the Victoria and Albert Museum, where you can go and see yeah. Trajan's column and all that. I mean, it's obviously a tradition that hasn't entirely sort of died out, even kind of museum sort of circles. Oh, I, I think absolutely, and and you know, the cast courts. I mean, they were you know for a while terribly unfashionable in the mid 20th century you know um uh people thought oh you know plastic casts you know how dreary you know plastic casts of trajan's column really um I, you know i think one of the sort of side benefits of postmodernism, in a way has been that we've started to think about replicas and reproductions and imitations mm. in a way that's a bit more generous to them i've always found them really mesmerizing actually mm. and partly that's because you stand next to them all together and you think I'm in a room of these huge plastic casts. Why? And they have this kind of sort of power of being all together, I suppose. And also you experience them um, in a whole range of very different ways from the way you experience the original. It, was, it wasn't until I went quite recently that I realised you could actually sit in the bottom of Trajan's column. No, you could you could go inside it. It was sort of hollow. Um, and so it gives you a, a different way uh, of engaging with, obje- with objects that somehow you think were just the same. You know, they are replicas, but they're doing something different to you. And you know, I think that's that's like my Uzo bottle that I bought in Plucker several years ago, um, full of not very nice Uzo, but in the shape of the Venus de Milo, you know. And I have the Venus de Milo on my mantelpiece. That's both about admiration. It's about cutting her down to size. It's about a joke, you know, because it's an Uzo mm. bottle, and it's about ownership. Um, and I think the whole the culture of um, those kind of memories, whether we call them souvenirs or not, is, is I think, very interesting um, about what it says about us and how we want to engage with, with the places that we go. So, as you say, Hadrian was able to do it by basically recreating it because, as you say, it was his empire and he had all the money. Um, but you, you said also that so-called ordinary people did travel around a fair bit. People got around the empire, didn't they? So what, what did they bring back if they didn't have... Uh, what was their equivalent of the of the Venus de Milo statuette with Uzo in? Yes, well, they couldn't they couldn't quite do what Hadrian did, uh, and I don't think that people, very many people, except the very rich in the ancient world, went on holiday. But they did travel. They, you know, they're, they're, the Romans, you know, are much more mobile uh, than we think. And when they went places. They also wanted to remember. They probably were going for work or whatever, but they wanted to remember. And they, they bought, it looks like, the sorts of things that we buy. Um, there is a, a, a wonderful um, uh, glass bottle in the shape of a famous statue from Antioch, um, the so-called Good Fortune Tyche of Antioch, um, probably originally filled with perfume or maybe the ancient equivalent of ouzo. Um, and there, 
there's something terribly similar to my ouzo bottle, you know, that uh, I'm going to this city, I'm, I, I've seen its famous, its famous statue, and yet I'm bringing it back in a different form. I'm bringing it back, you know, filled with something in glass. And one of the things that, that I, I think people aren't very well aware of, partly because they don't often get put on, you know, spotlit display in museums, often kind of crappy little things, but there are endless miniature replicas of some of the most famous works of art in antiquity. I mean, the, the statue of Athena that was inside the Parthenon, you know, you can find plenty of her in, you know, in cheap terracotta and or on little cheap gems and they're they're into the same mechanisms of of recall and ownership and souvenir and no doubt partly present and gift that we are and also I guess telling somebody that you've been there Mm -hmm. you know you you, you're displaying Mm -hmm. something to say yes yeah of course I've been there haven't you yes that's right and and of course it's because in the ancient world we don't know the history of these objects when we find them um, so we're never quite sure whether the person who owned this little um, terracotta Athena, whether they'd been to Athens or whether actually it was a sort of um, it was a symbol that substituted for a visit. I mean, there are plenty of people, you know, who have postcards or posters on their wall. I do of works of art that we've never actually seen. So they fulfill quite complicated ambivalent relationship between um the experience of viewing or the desire to view or the parade of a particular you know cultural cachet I guess it's no doubt it was as complicated in the ancient world as it was now there are disciplines aren't there you mentioned there are disciplines that study this kind of thing kind of now as it were souvenir theory and theories of place so can can these help in figuring out what the Romans did with the objects and what they meant to them. Yeah, I mean, I think they can. And I think that anyone who tried to look at ancient souvenirs as what clearly some of these objects are, you know, I think, um, you know, would be very foolish to do it without thinking about how modern sociologists have discussed souvenirs. I mean, the, the problem, as always, with the ancient world is quite how similar is it? Quite how, you know, is this an identical experience? Is it partly overlapping but partly very different and there's one particular group of objects that both the writers in the the books I discuss talk about which are extraordinary rather beautiful glass flasks with um, the cityscape of the towns of Baiae and Puteoli from the Bay of Naples. Roman, they look like Roman souvenirs. They look like, you know, I've been to Baiae and I've got, I've gone home with a glass flask with uh, the, the, the seafront of Baiae scratched out on it. Where you can, and it's not always easy, but you then look at where these things were found and several of the ones we know were found in graves. And you think, okay, this is a souvenir, but I don't get buried with my ouzo bottle. Um, so um, are, are these things doing something very different in the ancient world from what our souvenirs do? Maybe they are. 
you can't quite tell that they are fulfilling the same function. There's always a danger, as you say, isn't there, of, of because because we, especially because we recognise the object, there's a danger to leap to it and go, well, they were doing what we do. That's right. And, and in part, maybe they were, but in part, maybe these are fitting into the kind of culture of the ancient world in a significantly different way. Now, I can't begin to think what the connection between a glass flask with the cityscape of Bayamit and and the rituals of death. But it looks as if there was one in a way that there isn't now. Is it so widespread that, I mean, you know, sometimes people are buried with favourite objects. I mean, could it be that sort of simple or is it too widespread? Does it happen too frequently for that to be likely? Um, We're dealing with quite a small sample. (laughs) (laughs) Let me say, let me be honest. Um, It's very hard to know. Um, and you know you can say, look, this is very precious to somebody. What do you do with burials? You 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 can get buried with something very precious to you, uh, and it that, it's as simple as that. Um, some of the inscriptions that are also um, on them, um, there's the kind of the cityscape is engraved, but then there's little messages are engraved. Also, look a bit like funerary things you know you know the, the memory of my bright light and this kind of thing um so so i think it's puzzling I, I, but there my, my favorite example though actually is one where i think for once we can actually be um pretty certain that we're dealing with something which is absolutely spot on our experience because a few years ago there was a a, a metal stylus for writing uh, discovered in Roman London. And it's got a kind of very, very tiny, difficult to read verse on it. But as far as you can decode it, and, uh, and I think it's this is fairly certain, it does actually say, um, you know, I, I went to the big city and all I brought you was this rotten pen. <laughs> Partly, we are in the same world. Now, I think at the margins, we might not be. That's perfect, isn't it? It's, that's, it's wonderful to find something like that and go, damn, see, you yes. show it to someone and say, look, that present wasn't so bad. <laughs> they were like us, after all. <laughs> we can think that we're part of a long and noble tradition, beginning with at least yes. Hadrian. Yes, no need to feel ashamed. <laughs> You've made me feel so much better about my goldfinch fridge magnet, I must say. Oh, yeah, I th- I'm a big fan of all these things. The Romans would have... Um, so liked the fridge magnet, I think. Both beautiful and useful for holding up your shopping list. They'd also quite like a selfie, I can't help but imagine. You know, if only had Hadrian had his smartphone. You'd be sifting through them even now, Mary. That's what you'd be doing. (laughs) Thank you very much for enlightening us and liberating us from any lingering shame we may have felt about our our (laughs) knickknacks. Thank you so much. Thank you. to come on the show is Partygate a storm in a teacup or the manifestation of a government that knows no shame Edward Docks will be here to ponder the ills of Westminster and if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode
to the TLS podcast with me, Alex Clark, and the TLS arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Now, in recent weeks and months, Boris Johnson's government has lurched from one crisis to the next, from lobbying scandals to Russian donors, from lockdown parties to the heavy defeats of the local elections. But where did it all start? Are these missteps caused by poor judgment and blinkered political vanity, or are they indicative of a much more deeply rooted rot? The title of Hannah White's book, Held in Contempt, may give you a clue as to where she stands. Edward Docks has reviewed it and joins us now. Welcome, Edward. Hello. Now, I have to say, your review, uh, one of the angriest I've ever read, and all the better for it, didn't leave me in very much doubt as to where you stand. Is, Is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, hasten to add, not at all angry with Hannah White's book, which was and is excellent, and uh, which I read with a sense of great relief that there was another sane person out there who documented what had happened in parliaments, well, really since 2016. Um, But the subject which she addresses in a different way, I think, to the way I address it, which is the subject of contempt. um, Sure, I'm I'm pretty cross about that, and in particular, cross about it with relation to um, to Johnson and the current government. Mm. I mean, just tell us a little bit about the scope of her book. Uh, what's interesting, as you point out, is that she was once a clerk of the House of Commons. Now she's deputy director of the Institute for Government. So she really knows whereof she speaks. I think um, Hannah White is one of those wonderful, wonderful British people who um, began their lives or sorry, began their their adult lives, um, deeply devoted to making things better um, in the way that lots of civil servants are, but in her case, in Parliament. Mm. And she later advised on committees and has vast parliamentary experience in the most close-up and day-to-day dealing with MPs, dealing with legislation, dealing with procedures kind of a way. Um, I think I don't know exactly when she left for the Institute for Government, but I think it was in the last five years. And she moved from being inside the House and literally, you know, talking to MPs about how to get legislation passed or what works, what doesn't work and what's legal and what's not legal. She moved from that to a more wider strategic role where she now looks at, well, it's the Institute for Government, so looks at government and from a non-party political point of view, she was non-party political when she was in the in Parliament, of course, as well, tries to assess what might be done to make you know the central engine of British life, i.e. the procedures of Parliament, work better. And so that's where she comes from. And her book really is a, as you might imagine, given that background, a, a wonderfully skillful and forensic look at various aspects of Parliament done from a vantage point of expertise and with lots of love. She she obviously, as, as many civil servants do when you get to read their stuff or get to know them, she obviously loves Britain and loves loves Parliament. So it's written from a place of, of great um, care, I think. But she, she essentially diagnoses what we might say is, well, she calls it in, in, her, in her title, Held in Contempt. And she looks at various aspects of political life um, and how that plays out in Parliament and goes through them and sort of illuminates for the reader what it is that's going wrong. 
And just to give you some examples, one would be the arcane procedures are so difficult to learn that many young MPs or new MPs have no idea how anything works. And it takes them a long time to do so. You arrive in Parliament perhaps with lots of excitement and vim and, you know, from either side, whatever your views, trying to get things done for your constituents. And you sort of hit this labyrinthine nightmare of how procedure works and get ground down by it or it takes too long. Second obvious point she makes is the building, the actual buildings and uh, fabric of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, Palace of Westminster, is really, really dilapidated. And I used to work there briefly as a journalist myself, and I can tell you there's mice everywhere, you know, the, all the heating pipes leak. It's, it's, it's old and it's falling apart, and the disrepair is, is just such an obvious, obvious metaphor, really. And then the last thing, and I think the most serious, although all of those things are serious, is the way that successive governments, because of Brexit, have started to treat Parliament, starting off with Theresa May, who had to be reminded by the Supreme Court that she couldn't behave in the way she's trying to behave. And then we move on to the very, very, I can't think of a better word than bad, approach that Boris Johnson has had to Parliament, where he repeatedly sidelines Parliament, tried to prorogue Parliament, turned the people against Parliament by calling the Brexit bill a surrender bill. So essentially made the country complicit in discussing the illegitimacy of Parliament and then goes on from there, you know, and now is, is stands accused of repeatedly lying to Parliament. And Hannah makes that case. And then I go on from there to talk to talk more generally and perhaps more on the emotional human side of what contempt means. The first thing that one thinks, of course, is those processes and procedures which Hannah White seems to say and you to agree I just just render parliament not fit for purpose in the modern world of course they apply whatever party is in government but it also seems that you're making the point that there has been an incredible manipulation of those weaknesses in the last few years that that essentially Theresa May and then Johnson after her have used to manipulate to their own ends is is that right that's right. That's right. I mean, one of the things that came home to me reading um, Hannah White's book is a lot of what's actually happening in Parliament is driven by those parliamentarians who have been there for quite a while and who've got somehow got a grip on the arcane procedures and um, the labyrinthine difficulties of how you pass secondary and primary legislation and how you amend a vote and so on and so on. And this is not always the case, but it's often the case. Instead of discussing the matter in hand, members are constantly introducing bills or amendments that the public just don't understand. So the public are thinking, should we leave the European Union or not? And the parliamentarians may be thinking about that, but their bills don't seem to reflect that. Although they do in terms of the narrow parliamentary procedures. Very few people followed, for example, probably the most important act or one of the most important acts of recent time, the Ben Act, and then following that onto the European acts in the autumn of 2019. So when we're looking at those things from the outside, we're not, as, as people, we're not understanding very clearly what's going on. And nor, Hannah White makes the point, are the younger MPs. Now, you add that to another point that she makes, which I think is very good, which is this, this problem of parliamentary exceptionalism, whereby MPs feel, and in some ways you can see why, that's their legitimacy, that's, their, that's the reason they're there. 
and they need not um, participate in the kind of human human resources type life that someone in business would be. So, you know, if in business you had uh, someone said you'd assaulted them or whatever, there would be procedures. It would be quite clear. There'd be tribunals and so on and so on and so on. In Parliament, as we all know, there are, I think, over a dozen <laughs> live cases of that as we speak. And then there's all the stuff about um, Patterson and lobbying. And there's all kinds of areas where MPs behave as if they're exceptions to, to uh, establish rules. And that reaches its apogee in the figure of Johnson. I don't think I'm saying anything out, out of line here, but who essentially does what he pleases and then finds a way to get away with it in front of Parliament, rather than, as Hannah White argues at the end of her book, setting an example where MPs become exemplars, they become the best of us. So they try their best to be great equal rights for fathers and for mothers and all, all the good things and all the future things that are coming anyway, rather than try to do that and have great human resources procedures and fairness and no bullying. And they they do it the other way around. They do all the things they can get away with or they seem to do all the things they can get away with to the public. So she's really making a case for the dereliction of parliament. And I then go on to make my point off the back of hers, which is I think that this dereliction reaches, it, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, Nadir is a better word than apogee here, reaches its Nadir in the figure of Johnson, who I think is, is himself personally full of contempt, not just the parliament, but I also think for the media, I think for his own party, and I also think for the country. There's a balance, isn't there, between, because from what you say and what seems evident, there's a lot of need for reform mm-hmm. of the arcane procedures, as you say, to put some HR in, to mm-hmm. make it, um, to, just to make it much more modern and straightforward and fit for purpose. And then um, from what we can see, Dominic Cummings, one of his, I think, stated aims, it was sort of beyond reform. Is it, is it that that was kind of, it seems to me that that was kind of destruction of what was there? or almost shoving it aside. And the danger of it is, you know, and, the, and, and maybe if you did get rid of it all, you would get rid of a lot of bad things, but then but then there's nothing there. So I'm saying that, 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 that there is reform needed. Dominic Cummings, let's say, comes along and says, okay, I'll reform it. But what actually he does is make it seem unimportant, which is exactly the opposite of what Hannah White wants. Does that make sense? Yes, I think Hannah White and Dominic Cummings are very good um, ends of, of spectrum. I mean, in my in my view, I think, I, I think that, um, I mean, it's a different subject, but I think Cummings' apocalyptic worldview and the kind of, in my view, the emotional hysteria with which he, he he's a funny, he's a funny writer because for all his claims of rationalism and altruism and clarity, he actually writes some of the most emotionally hysterical prose that you can read in, in modern Britain. I'm really glad you say that, Edward, because I read some of the things and I sometimes think, is it me? I cannot make head nor tail of them half the time. It's all at force 10. It's it's actually the opposite mm. of rational. It's actually, you know, I mean, there's another piece to write about that, but it's actually, in my view, the opposite of rational. It's a kind of, it's a rationalism um, that is used as a thin carapace to to cloak a, uh, in my view, a soul on fire. I mean, the guy is completely on fire. And I, I strongly disagree with everything that he has stood for. But I do think one thing he shares with Hannah White, and which I think we have to we have to grant him, is he is interested, however wrongly, in my view, in the better polity of the UK which I think distinguishes both Hannah White and Dominic Cummings from from Johnson. 
um, because Johnson is not interested in those things. Johnson mm. is essentially, in my view, I, I wrote a long piece a while ago, I think a year ago, um, saying that I think he was very close to an archetypal clown. And in this piece that I write in the TLS, I, 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 I indicate how I think he use, uses absurdism as a weapon um, and the theatre of the absurd and how he collapses moral compass it's a sophisticated attack on the polity and on parliament and on britain but it is nonetheless a corrosive and diminishing attack where i think whereas i think both hannah white certainly hannah white but i think cummings in his way although misguided and i I blame him for lying to the country about brexit and so on on, although misguided and wrong they are at least interested in the discussion we could have them on to this podcast and we would at least agree the aim, the aim being how do we make Britain better, even if we disagreed the means. Whereas I think the Prime Minister is a completely, he's a very interesting character and a character, I think, who adorns national life. He just shouldn't be Prime Minister. He's the worst possible character for Prime Minister. This is the real crux of of, of the review and what I find so fascinating. Mm. You mentioned there, you talk about the theatre of the absurd mm. and you also talk about the psychology and the psychiatry you know I didn't particularly expect to be reading about D.W. Winnicott in this review but I was very glad I did but you talk about his creation of a, of a false self that's right uh, and and it just it's 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 really fascinating when you begin to think okay there's somebody in charge who is operating in a kind of I don't sort of shadow kind of way. I mean, what we think he's doing is not really what he's doing. Let me just show how the piece gets there. So, so what I what I was thinking when I was writing this, I was writing. So, if you like, Hannah White, because Hannah White is concerned with the with the parliamentary and the factual side of contempt, and I'm I'm interested in the moral psychology of contempt and what it what it teaches us about people. And one of the things that I I was reading was a a very good essay called Above and Beneath Contempt by a guy called Professor David Sussman. And he includes this fascinating quote from Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil. And I'll just give you the quote. He who despises himself still esteems himself as one who despises. And I write in the piece, I think that's a very striking quote because it captures something that the public feel instinctively about Johnson. And that's that there's a Johnson looking down on Johnson who can't believe that Johnson is getting away with Johnson, if you see what I mean. There's, as it were, two simultaneously present Johnsons. We might call one Boris and one, and one Johnson, if you like. I never dispute that he's, he's a clever guy. He's a very clever guy. But what's happening here, it seems to me, is that when, when you see Johnson in an interview or when, you're, when he's questioned or even when he's talking, there's the character of Boris. And then there's the slightly more sage, insightful and in, indeed interesting man. Um, his family called him Alexander Johnson. And these two people kind of coexist simultaneously. And that's where we get to to Winnicott's idea of the false self and the authentic self. And in a nutshell, Winnicott's idea is that in childhood, um, to counter coldness around us or disinterest around us, we develop a false self. And everyone does it to a certain extent. I certainly have a, a, a false self. Um, but in, in extreme circumstances, this false self becomes uh, monstrously distended and sophisticated uh, and, a, and a, an incredible performance, if you like. 
And that performance does really well because it's designed to seduce and beguile and garner attention and do all the things that were not there before. So if you like uh, under Winnicott's theory and, and, and people who are interested in, in reading uh, more Winnicott, I, I, love, I love his writing. He's very, I'm just going to remember the name of the exact book. It's called Playing in Reality and it was written in 1971. Very germane when it comes to Johnson. Anyway, there we are. We've got, we've got this idea of a false self and a true self. Now, what happens, Whitaker argues, when, when this gap gets really, really big, as I, as I would say it is in the case of, say, Johnson, I think Rhys Mogg's another candidate. What happens in the gap between the false self and the authentic self is that all kinds of uncomfortable feelings germinate. Guilt, shame, horror, embarrassment, furtiveness, phoniness, and of course, the fear of discovery. Because you're pretending it's a, it's, a, it's a protracted masquerade, is one of Winnicott's phrases. So what I think happens in the case of Johnson is one way that he gets out of these feelings, and the reason people think he's shameless and people think he doesn't suffer any guilt, is that he uses the absurd. He has this view, which is common among very highly educated people, I think, that the world is absurd, that we've made up the laws, that we've made up morality, we've made up gods, we've made up everything that we do. And that's an absurd thing to have done. And Johnson thinks things are absurd. If you read his novel, not a novel I recommend, just as a, as a way of, of finding more out about him, he says it. He says his character, who is called Roger Barlow, of all characters' names, says all this. And so Johnson uses the absurd um, and the fact that he thinks everything's absurd and invites you to agree to collapse these feelings of um, discomfort, these feelings of guilt and shame. If people are all absurdly constructed, then he, didn't, he doesn't need to feel any anxiety of self-contempt. Now, of course, the problem with that is, again, all very interesting if you've got your own show on TV or if you're a brilliant novelist or if you're an entertainer of some sort. It's no good in a prime minister because absurdism corrodes the very fundamental things that we need to function as a polity. So that being parliament, that being truth, that being the duty of honesty, that being all the things that we need to make our country work. And, and actually, Johnson's wrong because of, because people like me agree. Of course, we make the laws up. And of course, we invent philosophy and science and nation states and courtroom procedure and so on and so on. We know that. But the reason we invent them is to give our lives meaning. So I think that's why Johnson, in my personal view, this is my view, really, but I think that's why Johnson is so deleterious to the polity and, you know, to all the to, to the Irish people who, on both sides of that discussion who are suffering from his lack of you know, his, he basically treats borders as absurd. He treats countries as absurd. He treats religions as absurd. You know, and the Scottish fishermen who are out of business and all the Brexit stuff. So, and all the conservatives, some friends of mine, very well-meaning, brilliant conservative MPs, people like David Gork, who, who got booted out. I disagree with them politically, but I, I can see that he wants to try and make things better. So even they don't like Johnson because, because Johnson basically treats the Conservative Party as absurd as well. Thinking about the people he surrounds himself with, his cabinet, first and foremost, but his other political allies, um, are they all just going along with this for their own reasons of self-advancement and perhaps the kind of survival of the Conservative Party? I mean, people may not analyse Johnson to quite the degree that you have done. I'm not sure his, his cabinet, for example, is sitting around reading Winnicott and Nietzsche, but they must still have a sense of this. 
Why is it then that they tolerate it? Because he wins them elections, because he's a performer. Well, there we go. You, I mean, there's two, there's two answers. First is because he wins. So that just leave that there. That's why I think the letters have not gone in. Second answer, I think, um, I'm, I'm not alone in this, many, many better writers and thinkers than me have written it, that he surrounds himself by people who are not his intellectual and uh, instinctive equals. Um, those kind of people, and I'm thinking now of people like David Gork or Nick Bowles or, you know, um, Oliver Letwin or famously smart conservatives cannot be anywhere near his government. Um, the people that are close to him and that surround him in the par- in Parliament are people who are, you know, n- not got his intellectual ability and people who don't think and challenge him or would never think to challenge him in this way. And I think he's hollowed out the Conservative Party. The Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, um, Julian Smith, was one such person, I think, uh, and was widely admired on this on this island. Mm. Uh, and of course, therefore, had to go. Yeah. So that I mean, so that's what happens. The people, you know, people like uh, Priti Patel and Nadine Doris owe their careers and their positions to him quite clearly. And the minute he goes, they go. And they know that. I don't think that there are, you know, there are many people in the cabinet. In fact, I'm, I'm, I mean, Michael Gove is obviously highly intelligent, but Gove is a busted flush now, I think. Um, and he's not allowed near the media. So I think that most of the people around Johnson, um, I like Gito Harry. I've sat next to him at dinner a couple of times, but he's there for the fun. He's not there to, he's not there to tell Johnson what to do, really. Um, Steve Barclay owes his position to him. Uh, I don't think Steve Barclay's a particularly profound guy either. So the, the people around him are not the great conservatives of our generation. He's deracinated the people around him and, um, and put sycophants and less able people in there. And I think it's I think the Conservative Party is in big trouble because I think that what the, the country is really, really sick of them now. And lots of people on the centre right, people who have maybe voted for Blair, might even have voted for Brown, but then went back to Cameron and Clegg, they've had enough. And I think the Liberal Democrats are going to do very well in the South, better than people think. And I think it's going to be, um, you know, the Conservatives will find themselves having to start again. I think the damage he's doing, when I say in the piece, the damage he's done to the UK is absolutely unbelievable i mean it's really 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 deleterious to our standing in the world and to the polity of our country i was just wanted to just say something about the theatrical side of it because in terms of the performance because as you say they they're all doing a performance because they're public figures and to being a clown and being in the theater of the absurd everything is absurd but the clown is can be trying to create meaning within that they do also show you behind the scenes as it were but you can in that sense have uh, creative clowns rather than destructive clowns but from the way you're seeing it that's that's not even what he is is he? no i mean i agree with that and i think that's a really good point and i think that you're right the theater of the absurd is partly about the illumination of the architecture of theatre and therefore the architecture of human society thinking and relationships. It's not that I think that Johnson isn't doing that. I think he is doing that all the time. If you watch him in an interview, 
he basically is saying, my God, these interviews are so ridiculous. Can you believe that a person thinks this is the way to get the truth? Are you watching this? This is ludicrous. He's asking me a silly question. And I'm going to give him a silly answer because what answer else can I give him? This is such a, an absurd way to run things. So he's transmitting that all the time. And I think that's why I say in, in another piece that he's an archetypal or instinctive or compulsive clown. It's not that I don't think that those things are worth doing. I just think that it's the worst possible characteristic to have as a prime minister. Because the, pri- the prime minister has to be someone who, who upholds the polity and says, however we've arrived at these decisions, however we've arrived at this parliament, this way that we run things, we need to continue to believe in these things seriously, because this is how, as a nation, with a degree of communion and reciprocity, we live. It can't be someone who's saying the ideas of communion and reciprocity are absurd. Do you not realise life is about appetite? Look at me. I've got to go and sleep with someone else. I've got to eat more cake. You can't have someone like that in the centre of things or else everything falls apart. And I think we're seeing that. We're seeing that. I mean, everything he he turns towards, he treats um, as an apex clown. And it's funny and it's interesting. It is funny. It's interesting. It's also very involving and voters fall for it. You're drawn into it. But it's also just not what you need in a leader. If I was in charge of things, he'd be the culture secretary or something. And he'd be brilliant at that. But I wouldn't make him foreign secretary. and I wouldn't make him prime minister. And I wouldn't lay him anywhere near anything serious. Culture is serious. Can I just say on the TLS podcast? (laughs) Culture is serious. Yes. Sorry. Of course, as a novelist, I believe culture is serious. But I mean, <laughs> I mean that culture is playful and thoughtful as well as earnest. Yes, it might play to his strengths a little, a little bit more. Yeah, I, I have to say, Edward, you, as you say, you're a novelist, and uh, I think you have your next subject. Uh, yes, I've been thinking about that. But then you think, do you really want to sit in the mental space of? Johnson's clowning. I'm, I probably will, but not next. I'm, I'm in the middle of one at the moment, so I'm going to I'm going to get to the end of that. But I, you know, his teachers. Everyone says he's very interesting, and I think he is very interesting. I just think he shouldn't be prime minister. Thank you so much for coming on the TLS podcast. We're, we're very grateful. My great pleasure. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Mary Beard and Edward Docks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.